satisfying door slam. And now it will say door slams and then you saying satisfying door slam. And then it will say you saying satisfying door slam that I said. This got a little strange. It's gotten a little bit meta, very right off the bat. Yeah, the problem is you got meta right off the bat. I think you need to wait before you wander into such deep and philosophical waters. Oh, probably. But I didn't, so... Not at all, not at all. So we're here now. We are. And I'd like to say it is a cold day here on our recording session because this is the first episode of the podcast that we've recorded during the daylight hours. Because we've changed our schedule into daylight people. Now, if you're a member of the nighttime crew, I'd like to point out that we're still here for you because that's how recordings work. Yes. But we are now up during the day and it is breaking our brains a little bit because we had been on the night crew for several years. And there appears to be this flaming ball hanging in the sky. Don't scare people. Don't scare. They may not know about the flaming ball. Oh, they're day people. They probably do know about the flaming ball. Well, nighttime people, there's a flaming ball, but don't worry about it. You're not going to see it. Yeah. But we're here to report on all the flaming ball news right here on... Two Clowns in a Closet. I can't believe we came out of a flaming ball of, 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 of stuff in the sky into the name of our podcast. Plasma. Plasma. Is that the scientific term for the ball of fire? It is a, the scientific term for what the ball of... Fire is made of, yes. Well, you learn something new every day right here on our podcast. Yes. You don't need to do it twice. I think we're, I think we're, people know where they are by now. That they're on two clowns in a closet? Were you being subtle? I put the B in subtle. No, that's the grade you got. <laughs> it still passes. You did. It did. No, you, you did well. You did well. Well, we're here. We're warmed up. We're in the closet. It's the daylight hours. And, um... I think we're about to get into it. It does seem like we are about to get into it with a minimum of faffing about. Do we need to faff about somewhere? I feel under faffed. Do you feel under faffed? I do feel just a little bit under faffed, which is why I commented on it. A scotch under faffed? Mucasecle. The what? And a mucasecle. The muca what? So this is a Schwabish word. Okay. Mukasekele. And it means a little bit. Like, that's what it's used for. It's used to mean just a scotch, a tad, a bit. Okay. Its literal translation is, like most German words, because Schwäbisch is a German dialect, like most German words, it is a compound word. Mm. A muk is a gnat or a mosquito. Okay. Le is a diminutive ending. And sec means sack. <laughs> so it literally means the tiny sack on a gnat. I have a new favorite German word. So that is how in Schwäbisch... You say a small amount. So if I said, would you like some, some milk with your tea, you'd say... And milk secondly, bitte. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I have a new favorite German word. It's fun. 
Well, you know, you were worried about a lack of faffing about, but you've just given a vocabulary lesson. I think we're I think we're already heading in a good direction. It seems that way. Maybe we're ready to start with the questions. Just dive in. I think I think at this point it's no longer just diving in because we faffed about. So now oh. we're meandering towards the post faff meandering. Yes. yes, yes. I'm quite a fan of the post faff meandering. I, I like a mukasekla of it before we get into it. It's lovely how you just slid that right in. There. Well, you know, if you don't use a word, you don't learn it. True. As I've heard of Muka Sekla a number of times. That is not how it's used. Good try. It's, it's new for me. I know. It's I'm just new. saying. I'm saying oh. you can't just say it when you say a small number of times. You don't because it isn't a number. It's no. I know exactly what it is. You described it. It's you don't an need amount. To go again. It's a size. It's a size. So in my mukasekla knowledge of German, correct. Ish. Ish been not very good at this? Now see, that was better. And I snap the cards out of your hand and I'm prepared to read the questions because I have won the day. Welcome to all of our listeners. I want to say thank you for joining us. It's a fun time. Um... We've been getting, uh, we just didn't ask for more questions and we got some amazing feedback. And I just wanted to take a quick second to say thank you for that before we dove in. Because yeah, it's I've, really amazing. It we was got really, some great questions coming we, we, we got stuff coming up. The, the, the back half of the season is going to be, you know, you do a chef's kiss without making a noise and it's just you touched your face on the radio. It's worthless. True. You and got. yet you did it. And yet I did. This is what happens when you let physical theater people on the radio, even after a season and a half. Doesn't matter. We're still just making weird arm gestures we have to document for posterity. But. He says, holding a finger up. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm not going to tell them which finger. I'm holding a different finger up now. Are you ready? I am. Are you? I am. I am ready. I'm. I have meandered post-faffingly, and I have been sitting here for a mukasekla. And I am totally ready to get into this, rather than having this finger gesturing conversation. Which leads us to the first question of our podcast episode: Which Shakespeare or Bacon, as it were, play is your favorite? Also, I love that they included the bacon bit. It's very clever. Bacon bits. Like they're delicious, but uh, they're, they smell so good. The accusation that most of Shakespeare's work was written by Francis Bacon. Ah, well, I don't know that much about that, but the amount of bacon you used to eat, I would figure you did. You you're, would think, and yet you're vegetarian now. Who knows? But on the question, uh, oh, there was a question. I almost forgot. Yes, which plays your favorite? Unfortunately, I have a very limited amount of Shakespeare, full Shakespeare plays I've witnessed. Good clown, bad theater student. In school, we studied Romeo and Juliet. I studied Othello. Hmm. And... That was about it for the Shakespeare. And I don't think that gives me a wide enough sampling to really make a a solid choice. However, 
when I was in high school, a friend of mine had a DVD of a play that I adored. And it was called The Complete Works of William Shakespeare Abridged by the Reduced Shakespeare Company. I know that you introduced me to this. It's hilarious. It is a three-performer show. In the particular case, that was a three-man show in which they covered every work that William Shakespeare wrote, including the sonnets. Wow, yeah. In an hour and a half. Three men, an hour and a half, all of Shakespeare. It was it was a fun ride. I won't say it's I won't say it's accurate to even even to the name I think they even spell Shakespeare wrong. But I, it was a good ride. It's as one might expect, extremely abridged. It is a delightful show. From what I have heard, last time I looked, and it was a couple of years ago, a few years ago, last time I looked, um, they actually had restaged it and remounted the show. Oh. So it's a different set of performers. I think it's got at least one of the original cast, but a different set of performers. And they've brought it up to date because the show did have a significant amount of very timely jokes and asides that if you like weren't alive at the time that it was performed you would have no idea what they were talking about not everything ages well um, so they brought it more up to date and they are still performing it last wow. I heard well it's, it's neat to see that they took it and kept it alive that's really great mm-hmm. okay you want to turn this you want to turn this uh, closet around and read that to me yes uh, which Shakespeare or bacon as it were play is your favorite well I, I get in trouble twice here okay first of all I have this weird relationship with Shakespeare because I understand ultimately that Shakespeare was writing for the people. Yes. I mean it was it was Quentin Tarantino not you know not auteur films. It was you know if you were to look at it in the modern sense. It was definitely you know street theater in a lot of ways just elevated slightly. And so which is why Romeo plus Juliet is such a good it's representation. It's the only one that Mercutio ever made sense in because they made him high. Yeah. Yeah, it's the only one. But the point is, I'm trying to trying to get to this. So you have this thing where people in the arts elevate Shakespeare to this absurd sort of deific degree. And I got that in my face much more uh, early than I got a lot of Shakespeare in my face. And it put... Uh, kind of, it just kind of put a weird, a weird feeling over the absorption of all of it, you know, because I was always reading it through like, this is important, which the minute you tell someone something is important, they stop having fun, uh, which, which really damaged it. And ultimately I never really became an enormous fan while I was studying theater. I never became an enormous fan of Shakespeare, which of course puts you at odds of all the theater people, which may be how I ended up in this closet. Um, but on the flip side of that, I've gotten to make fun of Shakespeare a shocking number of times. 
I've done variety shows where we we lampooned it. We've do, we've done acts where we 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 played with it because they are so universal themes. So the first place I get in trouble is because I will dunk on Shakespeare without hesitation because it was really simple plots that have been redone forever and probably redone before that. And it was were... really simple plots and then a bunch of sexual innuendos. Yeah. And then fight scenes. Right. What else could you ask for in entertainment if you're thinking about, you know, entertainment where the popcorn goes in the mouth without interruption? But if you're looking at high art, eh, it's a different thing. Now, that said, the other place to get in trouble is the minute anyone comes after me about, uh, well, what's your favorite Shakespeare? They're expecting me to name a comedy. And I don't. My favorite would probably be Hamlet. And the reason why I like Hamlet, probably as a scene-stealing monster myself, I like that Hamlet gets to chew a lot of scenery. And there's this, there's this essential question of Hamlet as a character, which is, is Hamlet, has Hamlet lost his mind, or is he playing a very advanced psychological game of political intrigue? And Varying degrees of both are often the, the modern interpretation. And I think it's it's really interesting to have a, a story that works. Either way? Not just either way, but it is vibrant in totally different ways depending on how you interpret the specific point. And it's a really... I'm talking about a very beginner point of theater. I know I sound like I'm being very lofty about it, but it's it's one of those like, this is the concept of subtext. Here is subtext 101. Was What was going on in this character's head? Were they hallucinating or lying about it? It's a pretty early on idea, but it really, it really got me. And so I like seeing portrayals of that. And we were on tour teaching, as I recall, and we were teaching at a theater, and we got invited to see a show, and, and I thought of this because you said uh, reduce Shakespeare three performers. I got to see with you a production of Hamlet that was called One Ham Manlet, and it was a one person performance of Hamlet. Now, it was hilarious, but the presentation of the text was done 100% seriously. But the shenanigans you have to simultaneously go through in order to do that as a one-man show, unabridged, is... Was hilarious. Fight scenes, death scenes, ghosts, everything. Running back and forth across the stage, changing costumes. And it further cemented my love of this and also the fact that you can take something that is fairly dire and just by recontextualizing it, make it hilarious. And this sort of cemented, I think Hamlet is my is my favorite. I've studied other other works with more depth. But I, I think I'm gonna go I think I'm gonna go on that one. All right. Well that's a that's a solid Is this a solid solid okay. answer? Okay, well thank you. Thank solid you. answer. All right. So we move on to the next question. And the next question um, has a little bit of it's a two, preamble. You, you've actually written on both sides I of the card. I have written on both sides of the card here. Yeah. Um, and I was very excited to receive this question. Why were you excited to receive the question? Because I have been hoping to talk about this for a while. Oh, and without a prompt, it's hard to just start a topic, isn't it? Particularly here, where what we do is answer people's questions. Right, the format of the show breaks if we just get a, a wild hair to talk about something. We're sort of dependent on you, dear listener. So please do keep sending questions. And get them, yeah, make them good. Like you have. Make them anything. They will be good. Like you have. 
So you have this. You have, so this, I have this question, and it's long rambling and question. It's it's not that it is a long rambling. It's question. the longest question I think we've re- we've received because I've never seen writing on the back of the card. Am I selling it too much? I have, in the past, distilled a few people's statements down to the question that they asked, because often people lead with a preamble. Okay. This requires the preamble. Oh. This is a context-sensitive question. It is a context-sensitive question. All right. Well, let's let's have it. So here we go. We are plural, which means that one of us is fronting. Sometimes we switch without planning, and four of us go, nope, that's your job. Mostly it's fine, and the person most appropriate for the situation is fronting. But sometimes it can be odd or lead to strange interactions. It strikes us... There is a little similarity with clowns. There is the person fronting until performance. Then it is the clown. So the question would be, is there any situation where when not actually performing, when your clown has gone, I got this, and taken over unprompted? Oh, so big, big topic. And we, I know from, from our work, we both have a lot to talk about here. I do feel like we should probably do some, some content warning. So to explain really quickly. Yeah. Because they've mentioned what this is, but they haven't just defined it. For anyone unfamiliar, unfamiliar with plurality, a couple of diagnostic phrases you may have heard are multiple personality. Which is a very dated term. Which is a very dated term. I'm just trying to make sure that I'm pulling people in really quickly on connecting dots. Mm -hmm. Um, Another medicalized term is DID or Dissociative Identity Disorder. Saying plural does not mean that somebody is diagnosed with anything, to be clear. Um, But it does mean there are multiple personalities or people or entities. Alters is a typical word used, I've heard frequently, inhabiting the same body. So multiple fully fleshed out people in one body. That's the quick summary. Okay. And if for some reason, this, this I know there's a lot of sensitive stuff here. And I think it's important to point out that we are theater practitioners. We're not therapists. We're not doctors. We're not psychologists. If we get something wrong, please tell us so we can learn. And also, if this is a topic that's difficult, I will put a timestamp in the show notes when we move on to the next question so you can check that and fast forward. That way everyone is is here and we're discussing a comparison of our experience versus someone else's. And well, as compared to, not yes. versus. And as is always the case, we also do have transcripts. Good point. So if it is easier to read about a topic for you than it is to listen, mm-hmm. and that is an easier way for you to to listen to our opinion, that's also available. I think we've made it roughly safe for people. I think, I think so. I think so. If we get it wrong and there's a way we can do it better, I'm going to say, please tell us. Oh, yeah, definitely. And in the meantime, 
This question is big enough. Do we want to just kind of round table? I think, we'll yeah, it's probably best for us to, okay. to round table well, a little get... bit. We'll pretend you also asked me and... We're in it now. We're in it now. Okay, so first of all, since it was, it was the ball was thrown my direction, mm-hmm. um, I am lucky enough to have some friends who are part of systems and I've gotten to talk to them about this topic in particular. And this is a topic that I think when you are exploring ideas of identity, ideas of persona, you know, which is the root word that we get person from. When you start talking about these things and characters and and clown as a mental state as opposed to a a skill set, it comes up very it comes up a lot. And it's a, a topic I love because it's there's no right answer here because you you just get into an area that is for lack of a better term kind of mystic, kind of woo-woo. And you just have to, you have to roll with that because the first thing I really had driven home to me was the idea that identity, I mean, I am me sitting in this closet with you right now, talking to you, my friend, uh, on, on this podcast, we're, we're all a bunch of things. Even if we identify as one thing throughout the course of the day, who I was before I had my morning coffee I assure you as a person that could not sit here and rationally have this conversation and who I am honestly as vulgar as it is before I had to go to the bathroom is different than who I am after I've done my morning workout and warm up and I'm ready to interact with the world. These things change me. And so I'm in constant flux identifying as even just one identity. Yes. So that's the, the first the first stop point I have. The way I teach clown and the way it was taught to me, and I'm, I'm going to gloss a lot of detail here because that is its own set of topics, is that there's a bunch of sort of fundamental ideas of physicality, of intellect, of spirit, for lack of a better word, that we align and we start creating uh, a sort of a heightened, hyper-present, playful state. And that's put through a lens that is incredibly rigorously confined to the stage. We really encourage, in fact, we do some specific training to say, hey, this is, this is for this. And then it goes and rests when it's not doing that work. And that's the clown, the clown state. And the description I heard once that I really liked was that the clown lives in the back of your head in a box. And we joke about it all the time. Mm-hmm. The clown, the clown lives in the back of your head in a box, and at some point you sort of trade places. And at, yes, that does sound an awful lot. Exactly. Like how I've heard any description from any plural system I have ever talked to or read from or listened from. It sounds extraordinarily similar Here's the to int- how swapping out who's fronting works. Here's the interesting thing. So we're taught this mental model, which is about bringing something in ourselves that is us. And, and the, the, the way I always envision it is very, very similar to more of a summoning of yourself. If you could imagine you were going to summon you into the room, mm-hmm. that's what you get, you know, this sort of heightened thing, um, which is uh, its own, it's, it's its own. I mean, you're, it's you still, though. Deep down, it's all of you. Yes. It's your stuff. Um, and yet somehow when it's happening, it is very, it's frightening because it, it feels a little out of control. 
And the other important thing to realize the counterbalance to that is what I'm describing is a mental model. Yes. I'm not describing um, I'm not describing something that has either happened organically or spontaneously in response to something. I'm talking about something that was a, tr- a learned trained decision. That being said, hmm. I have a pet theory, which is one of the reasons why I was hoping against hope that a plural system might reach out and have this same thought. Okay. Not that necessarily this is the same thought, but the the overlap that to notice the same the similarities. So this is your your pet theory. Let me hear your pet my theory. pet theory. From what I have seen and from what I have experienced, one of the common themes to most of the theories of how systems tend to be formed is through trauma and through fairly intense trauma. I'm not going to dig further into that. Of course. But if the human brain is capable of something as a defense mechanism, which is one of the common theories of how this ends up happening, then the human brain is capable of doing a thing. And... I am not one for putting arbitrary limits on when and why a brain can do something. Now, I don't think you're going to end up with the same result if you attempt to intentionally cause something similar to what the response to trauma is in people who have an identity split due to it. Because that's not going to be the same. Intense emotional trauma response, not going to be the same thing as if you have intentionally put yourself in a position and consented to putting yourself in a situation where you're encouraging your brain to do something similar. But when we get ourselves into that state that you mentioned, where we're actively working on aligning these things within ourselves, what we then do is put somebody under pressure. Yeah. And... We've talked about this a few different times, and one of the times we were talking about this, you brought up that in polls of human beings, the number two fear is death. The number one fear is public speaking. People would rather be in the coffin than give the eulogy. Now, if that's true... Then being on stage is trauma. Then being on stage... Can be trauma. Can be traumatic. I'm seeing where you're going. I'm seeing. So there's a strong argument that we are honing a very specific situation to cause a small trauma, a small controlled trauma that aims something in a particular direction. 
Hmm. And there's a strong argument in my mind to say that there is very little difference between the alters that a multiple system may have and a clown persona in a person. And different clowns are going to have different responses on this and there, not everyone's going to agree with me there by are, a long shot. There are clowns who actively don't think, they think of it as a theater discipline and there's nothing brought to the table except a different energetic state. And yet when you watch them work, they go through ritualized practices to become what they're ready to be. Whether that's putting on the costume or getting ready or doing something the same way, putting on their left shoe first, it's always there. What I'll say that's interesting, as and this is me putting on the teacher hat for a minute, whenever we have a person training with us and we're teaching them clown technique and we're teaching them how to get access this thing and I, I think of it as like a fundamental technology human brains have is this ability to transform and become something bigger than themselves you just have to access it and it's usually in a box in the back of your head under a lot of trauma stuff, stuff trauma garbage etc the first time it happens you can reliably expect to see an emotional, a severe emotional response. It's usually only for a split second, but you'll see someone laugh spontaneously, cry spontaneously, get angry. Um, they have this flash of uncontrolled emotion. I mean, it's, it's definitely kind of primitive. And mm -hmm. then for a split second, at, in the calm that comes after that, we see the clown, and then it, it kind of shuts down. And I feel like the idea that you create in the theater lab, safe spaces to explore mm -hmm. emotions. And, you know, the, we talk about how clowns essentially juggle emotions. We're, we're talking about setting up a circumstance. When we want a clown to learn something, we put them in a situation where they learn it. We don't just tell them a thing. We yes. have them experience it. And it's very much like, like creating a, a childhood uh, play space with learning opportunities. You create a learning opportunity, they explore, they come to a conclusion, it may not be the one you want. But you, you're, you're giving them chances to play. Um, it's really interesting when you get into like trance mask where what comes in the room initially is much more primitive and you're working to get it to speak. You're working to get that, that, that persona to have any communication and you're rewarding them with laughter and applause and cheering for them and, you know, and, and giving them things to play with. It is very much childlike. But it, you watch people when they take that mask off and they come back, we always say they come back to themselves. Mm -hmm. they, we give them a tool that allows them to step past their conceptions of their own identity and find something unexpected. Whether that is an amplification of a different angle, a different... I, I like to think of it in the work as we have all of these different lenses that we view the world. If you, if you wear glasses... And I, I tell all of my students to do this. If you wear glasses, take a moment, take them off, and really look around at the world as it is without your glasses and with your glasses and realize that that lens is a choice. I'm not saying it's not a good choice, but it changes your perception of reality. And I feel like internally, finding your way to these states, these playful states, is very similar because what we're doing is we're sort of adjusting all the lenses to get a different, a different, and in our case, very specific effect. Yes. But the idea that it is, I, I 
think I would say that it's much, it might be trauma adjacent. I don't know if it's trauma specific. I do know that in my case, we, I talked about emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a teacher say to me very early on that there was no place in the work for anger. And because every time I got ready to work, I started getting agitated and I would end up bringing it to the stage and I'd be, I'd be angry. And it wasn't until I really unpacked the realization that I get backstage, I used to get ragey randomly for a minute. And then it would go away and I'd be ready to play. But by that point, all the people I was going to play with were mad at me because I, I said something crappy or I yelled at them or I was I was me. And I finally realized, oh, I'm going to have this emotion. I need to learn to manage it because it is part of something that happens before the clown shows up. There's a heightened energy that I don't know how to handle. Over time, it's turned into something else. And thankfully, I don't rage out at everyone around me. I do get really mean in rehearsals, though. True. I do. I do get mean in rehearsals. And I know I know other performers who will burst into tears backstage mm-hmm. and they have to plan doing their makeup to account for the time it takes to fix it. Yes. And I've seen that and you go, oh, okay, that's really a thing because these aren't, these aren't performers. They're backstage. They're not, they're part of a ritual that puts you in a place where that can happen. And I know on days where I'm performing, there are rituals that get me ready to work. I am you know, I'm, if I'm going to be working, I'm listening to music, I move my body, I shave, I, you know, I have mm-hmm. a coffee right before I work. I have this sort of uh, thing that gets me ready to work. And, and the, the lesson from one of my teachers was figure out what you need in order to be able to ready to play, ready to work, and give it to yourself. And it's a piece of advice I give to everybody is find out what you need and allow yourself to have that. Because the best you shows up when you summon it and the best way to get something to stick around after you summon it is give it the offering of the thing it wants. Yes. It's just kind of common sense. Yeah. I I think also I'm going to double back a little bit to some of the other things I've thought about. um, Please. In relation to plurality. I don't remember exactly when it was that I started actively looking for stories from plural systems. I believe it was after I was starting to do clown work and started to have some of these these experiences. And something that I read about from a few different accounts really resonated with me because it was very similar to what I experienced with the clown. Mm which um, I've heard termed co-fronting. So fronting is the who's in charge of the body, who's doing the actual interactions, who's seeing things, hearing things, interacting with people. Okay. And typically that's one persona. But sometimes it's not. Sometimes two or more are sort of in the cockpit, in the control room with different levels of who's actively doing things and somebody being more passively there depending on you know, this is different for every system that I've heard talk about it but one of the things that I noticed when in early clown development is that the clown would show up, but I would still very much be there. 
um, part of that was because I didn't necessarily trust the clown to know what they were doing or how to keep us safe or how to start coming up with ideas for themselves. And so I would be there sort of overseeing and it felt like they had the controls and I was just behind them or just off to the side and I had a couple of overrides or I could shout to them as I got further and further back and away and let let them run more it would be like I'd be shouting from far behind and then there's sometimes the clown shows up and then the show is over just the and I only kind of know what happened I've had that experience with improv where you're so in the moment that when you step off the stage, it's it's gone. You don't have it anymore. And then to to the question to the question question. Oh, the, because the actual... we had the beginning part of the question of just talking about plurality, and we've taken that on in a more general sense. Um, but the question question was has the clown ever stepped up and gone I've got this when when we were not on stage oh yes the, the quick answer is yes yes that happens um, and one of the things that I've noticed is on that same co-fronting idea is sometimes I will be getting near the clown state and I'll hear their voice or heck once I was walking through a mall and they reached out and grabbed an article of clothing and said, I want this. I still don't know why. I've never worn it in performance. That's weird. I wonder wonder what that's going to But they out. said, this is mine, thanks. Um, that's weird. So I bought it. Uh, <laughs> but one of the things that we also do is we actively train to try to limit that. Because if you don't, then you have this problem where you have this energetic state with boundary issues that doesn't know when it's time to play. And it's it's a twofold problem because one hand, they're misbehaving. And on the other hand, they're not maximizing their energy. They're not maximizing what they can do if they're constantly bleeding through. Yes. So, so I've definitely had a few situations um, where, I mean, we have that example of a, a partial where where somebody grabbed um, an article of clothing and said, this is mine. Um, But also very early on um, in exploring Jane, I was working at a coffee shop uh, as a barista. And they decided they could do that job. How did that go? Not very well. I imagined. Because... There, we sometimes talk about the clown nose as a warning label. Oh, yeah. It tells people caution, you know. Caution. Person who's going to behave somewhat erratically, but it will be funny. Trust us. I use the word idiot. Frequently, yes. <laughs> uh, it, that's, you know, you don't have that warning label. You're not prepared for what's going to happen. No. Uh, I, I had a couple of times she was like, I got this. Very quickly, it was like, no, no, you don't. You really don't have this. You're having some great interactions with the people. Everyone loves you, but you're bad at your job. But you're very <laughs> bad at your job because that is what clowns do very, very well is they are very bad at their job. Um, 
which means they're very good at their job. That's just its own thing. Uh, so I, we had to step away. I had to calm down and explain why that wasn't okay and tell her to go back to sleep. I had a really uh, severe early on uh, formative experience with something like that. Uh, once I had solidified the, the clown persona that I, I work with most, uh, Jan, um, and it was before he had a name. We just knew who he was. He was so different than me that when he was in the room, we knew. And so I was working with this, and it was, and it was good. And the annoying thing is that somehow my shuffling of brain had put much of my sort of like the I have clown wisdom, the teaching stuff, mm-hmm. in that part of the brain. And so that clown knew more about clown than I did. I would regularly come in the room and, and tell people how to do. Yes. Which was great in rehearsal and annoying every other time. But I had a I had a really, a really big experience. We were on a teaching tour. And I've, I, I love teaching at theater workshops and things like that. We're, and, we, you know, because usually they put you in a big theater or a hotel ballroom. It was all to yourself and you get to dance around like a fool or, you know... A, a, or a conference center, yeah, something, or something big. Yeah. But for one for one reason or another, I had never been to a high school. Now, I know this is going to come to a shock, as a shock to a lot of people. But uh, that was not an era where uh, I was an okay person. High school, high school, and and before and leading up to it was a tough time for me. Not just puberty was a beast, which it was, but uh, just I was going through a lot of stuff in my life, and. I don't, you know, you, you get past it and you go, oh, I'm well, and you just don't go back to that. So you're, you know, you're great. And suddenly I found myself walking into a high school because they had us teaching in the classrooms and the gymnasiums for this one festival. And I walked in and the full weight of a panic I had never dealt with showed up. And I was beginning to really shut down. It was actually really traumatic. And I'm, I'm, we were several states away from home. Our place to stay is dependent on us doing our job. You know, it's 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 not something I can really I I can't walk away. I have to do the job. I it, logistically, mm-hmm. and at the same time, I'm sitting there going, "This is my job. I'm good at this, but I can't do this." And I'm I'm cold sweat, panic, freaking out, not processing reality around me. And in that moment, the clown says, "I got this," and takes a step forward. And goes, okay, turns left, walks in the classroom, teaches the class. Conveniently, it was the right classroom. Um, and then proceeds to run every one of my workshops. What you're not picking up on, unless you're paying close attention, is it wasn't like I fully came back to myself in between, which meant I was in this hyper-vigilant, energized, full-throttle performance state for what worked out to be about three days. It was an adventure. You were the, you I were, was there. You were the only reason I got through it. Thank you. I wrangled it. Because you I'm burning all this energy, I'm nonstop, and in between I'm continuing I'm not, to perform. I'm continuing to perform. I'm not a danger to anyone because it's the best version of me, but it's the version of me that's burning the candle on three ends. And on the far side of that, I crashed. And I was not okay. Because you checked ex- in with me that we were done. Right. And at that point, it was over. 
and then we were in a coffee shop. Yeah. We ordered a coffee. He was like, there's nothing else I need to do. And I was like, no, we're, we're good. And then you crashed. I crashed sobbing a mess and it became aware. And this is an interesting sort of adjacent thing. It became aware at that time that one, that was not really an option as a teacher. And two, there's an upper limit to how well you can teach that way because you're not, you're performing. You're not, you're not involved. Mm -hmm. And I came, it, it was a really, it was a really good wake up call. I talk right workshops. I know that because the stuff I was teaching, I was, I was very good at, but I became aware if I was going to go further in the work and I've gone much further since then, that I was going to have to sort of reshuffle the, remember I said some things got shuffled in. Mm -hmm. I was going to have to kind of sift out the, the, the idiot can't be the all knowing idiot was what it, what it was the phrase it came to. And I know that's not a great way to say it and why I'm very careful about such things talking about in the context of the work. But I had this moment where I had to kind of separate out that part of me that knew and the the phrase the mantra that came from one another teacher was it's important not to know too much and it's something i say all the time and part of it is about the wonder and joy of not knowing because that means you can discover and part of it is if you are full throttle on like that and you know everything you're not listening anymore you're not going to pick up on anything new you're done with your journey at that point and that is not a way to keep evolving as a performer as a creative person, as a human being. And so there was a period after that of adjustment where I think I sort of had to relearn how to use the skills I already had as a teacher. My performance skills, weirdly, because suddenly I didn't think I knew everything. They got better. I got, I jumped ahead in skill. Mm -hmm. But I had to kind of re-go go through again and learn how to learn how to teach. And it was very good for me and it was very good for ultimately for many students because I'd been through this process where something in me took over, ran the room, and then of its own volition and of my own volition, we disassembled and reassembled and made some, you know, sort of internal. You changed the, you changed the, the, the read permissions on a set of data. I guess, I guess, in your head. I guess, yeah, for lack of a better, I, I got, I that, felt that, like a, that user lost, lost read permissions on, I, on something, on a set of things. So that was such a profound experience for me because it was the first time within the work that I had really had, um, I really had something that was, I gave over my control and there's, there's a story I have where I was, I was, it was after that I was, working with uh, De Castro and in in the break in between sessions I had a, a moment where I learned how to get out of it. We talk about we're in our way. We're, we're repressing the clown. We're holding that playful state back because we don't trust it. Mm -hmm. um, I had a moment where I learned how to get out of my own way and it was a really profound moment of its own but it, it becomes a really it becomes really helpful to think of it in these like the, the we, we talk about we think about the clown as a separate person because it really helps our mental health more mm -hmm. than anything the other thing i think about was whereas you were talking about uh reading systems reading plural people's experience mm -hmm. i went the other way and i i wasn't a skeptic's way i happened to keep meeting wonderful people who i who had who had this as part of their identity and that was wonderful because i got this perspective to yeah. balance what I did because I dove in figuring there must be an answer somewhere in the text. So I'm studying theater. I'm studying mask. I'm studying uh, psychology. 
I'm studying, uh, honestly, some occult stuff. I'm digging down various rabbit holes looking for an answer, which, of course, there isn't one consistent answer because one side says it's a mental health crisis. The other side says it is God speaking through us, and you have to find some version of that. That That works works for you. Exactly. But what I remember was talking about willful skills. There was a, there's a thing, it's a controversial thing called tulpamancy, which is mentally create, I'm being super simplifying, but to create a mental projection of an idea and give it enough autonomy that it becomes a thing you see. And it's sort of like giving yourself an intentional hallucination. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I always think of a Who Framed Roger Rabbit, uh, Bob Hoskins, talking about how he pictured Roger Rabbit so often that that became an autonomous thing that even when he wasn't working for years later, he still saw and talked to. Yeah. So it's like that, right? So I became fascinated with that. And so I found, uh, I found a meditation to help you with this process. And I figure I can bail out of a process. Like an audio guide? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Put, put in the headphones and listen to it. And um, I'm so old, I just made the gesture of an audio cassette. I saw. Yeah, but I, it, was on, it was on a device. Anyway, point is, I said, I'm going to give over to this and give it a shot. And this is, I've been studying clown for years. This was in, you know, recent, not recent history, but, you know, the last handful of years. And I laid down. And I was, it's like, and imagine. And I said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring the clown into the room. Because I'm always doing it through me. So what happens if I do it like this? And I start imagining. And I say, oh, imagine the silvery energy glowing in the shape of the thing you want. Now begin to sculpt it with your mind. And I'm going through all this. And I hear from behind me, over my left ear, I hear, what the hell are you doing? And it's the clown's voice, clear as day. And I was, I'm making you happen, you know, in the room. No, that you can't do that. And suddenly I'm having a, this audio is still playing in my ears. And I'm having an argument with someone in my mind that is in the room. The clown and the clown. I finally go. Well, why is this a problem? And the clown says, "Because I come in through you. That's the point. You get out of the way. I do my job. And then I leave. If I'm in the room the way you're describing, I only exist in your mind, and I can't be shared with anyone else in that way. And that's the clown's wisdom from that. And I oh, thought, wow. and, yeah. I, and it was such a it was such a, a strange moment to be in an argument with you, uh, an out loud, like in the room, yelling argument with myself while listening. Um, I have a thin wall behind my bedroom, and I'm very worried that people hear me. Uh, but it was it was good because it answered a question I had, which was that idea of the summoning through yourself was such a profound part of the clown experience. It has to come through you so it can be in the world. We're not talking because not, that's what it's for, right? It's the description I heard is that mediumship. This is from the occult studies. Mediumship is for talking to the dead, and clown is for talking to the living, and that's what it's for. I, you can't talk to the living if it's all in, if it's all in your head. Mm-hmm. So that's where one of the most interesting splits was, and then of course doing more research. The clown doesn't necessarily come with the same sort of inner world that... They they have a very, very limited inner world. And I think that's to keep them from running off on you mm-hmm. in some ways. And it's, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting difference because talking to uh, those that come from plural systems, talking to them about how sometimes there are, are enormous inner worlds. Yes, and, the, and in her lives. And I think that's wonderful. 
it is just very different than the experience we have with the clown where we had a, a workshop. We brought one of the clowns who was, who was very, very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, this wonderful clown comes in the room, and we said, we're going to do interviews. And this was a, a sort of stuff where the clown gets a chance to talk about what's on their mind. It was such a neat experience because you don't normally do that because normally you give the clown a job and you yell at them and they play. So this was a chance to let the clown intellect run. And somebody, and you know, first it's what's your favorite sandwich? And then eventually it was, where do you go when you're not here? Somebody dared to ask it. And in the back of my head as a teacher, I was facilitating. I'm like, oh no. This is going to go really... Don't do that. I said, are you going to... And I honestly thought this was going to break the clown Mm -hmm. that was in the room. I thought the performer and the clown were going to have a problem. And the clown looks and looks very thoughtful and says, well, when I'm not experiencing that... And they begin to describe. They say, well, I sort of float and I close my eyes and I I rest. And the two things that came out of that were, we teach the clown to go rest when they're not performing. So they're ready to play. Mm Mm-hmm. We tell them that. We say, go, good job, go rest. Very common thing to say to the clowns when they're in training. Mm-hmm. And they'll even tell you later on, once they're stable, they'll, they'll tell you, I need to rest, I'm tired. And yeah. it means they're running out of energy to be in the room. It's mm-hmm. not that they're necessarily even physically tired. They're, they're, they're not staying. Mm-hmm. They're giving you a warning. But the other thing was the description, this sort of poetic, I don't remember it exactly, but this beautiful poetic description sounded like floating in the womb. Yeah. And it really, it was poetic, and we all kind of felt chills as we heard this description of this clown going, yes, when I'm not here, I, I float and I wait until the opportunity to come in the room and play some more, and it recharges me, and it's dark and it's calm and it's safe. And I was just like, whoa, you said that. And so somewhere, the balance to that is to my, we always joke, if you ask the clown, you know, they sleep in a cardboard box backstage. Their life exists on stage. So mm-hmm. the idea, and, and for me, it's a... It's a really weird literal truth because the two Rubbermaid tubs that are sitting here, one of them has my clown in it. Uh, yes. When we go to an event site, we put the clown in it, um, and the clown sleeps in there when I'm not working is the joke. So it's like I'm literally sitting next to the box where the clown sleeps, and I always joke about, oh, I sleep in a box backstage. But that's how you actually mentally... Separate, is, is yeah. That, is that where it seems like he is? No. No, not for, not for, not for me. I don't think so. Hang on, let me try. I'm going to make some noise. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's a Rubbermaid. Did you hear the pop? Yeah, uh, no, there's no... Uh, no, I don't, I, don't, I don't have that. Because what I, I think- have is they are just... I'll tell you, for me, when mm-hmm. I'm working and the clown is really active, like we're having a conversation like this, the clown's a little bit here, you know, I feel that feeling. Mm-hmm. The clown is just behind me to the right a little bit. And I think I associate this... One of my teachers used to delight in stepping up behind you and whispering notes to you while you were performing. Mm-hmm. And it's like where the wisdom comes in so i think the clown figures out oh that's where smart people talk and so goes back there but also they're here they're just out of my field of vision so i can't see them as long as i turn my head well now my head's turned and i can't see them they're just behind my ear so i think it's like that see to me to me the one little bit of inner world that i have going Uh is that where I've heard different descriptions of cockpits or control rooms or or similar things. There's a stage. There's wings. There's a stage. In your head. Where I am right now. Okay. Is the stage. 
Right. Where they are right now is just off stage, Waiting. Maybe even in a green room somewhere. But I have no data on that because it's dark back there because the stage is brightly lit and it's dark just off stage. If you go into the wings, it's too dark to really have a clear idea of where that is or what it is. Oh, that's so good. And we create these mental models, and I think we create them because we are we are physical beings. We have bodies, you know, those of us who are sitting in the room, listening, being, doing. Mm-hmm. And I think we create these mental models because they help us handle this information that we don't know what to do with. Yeah. And I think whatever one you're using, if it's making you happy, if it's making you well, if it's making you functional, if it's making you creative, if it's giving you pleasure, whatever model you exist under, I think that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. What is important, I think, is to is to discover it and not decide it. One of the things we have to do, and I'm, again, I, I can really only speak to this from from the work. We have to be very careful not to write for the clown, because I've heard people go, "Oh, well, my clown this, my clown that, and we will do this." You can't write like you're writing with a pen. You have to go into the lab and discover and have an experience because it will fundamentally be different than whatever you wrote. Because what you wrote is you writing. What the clown does is what they're doing. Yeah, so you can make some predictions once you've seen what they do enough. Sure. You can go, oh, okay, well, no, they tend to do this. And you can make some guesses and you can put some frameworks out to attempt to guide them in a particular way. But they'll surprise you. But you really don't know what's going to happen. I'm a teacher. I have been in front of... so many baby clowns. I don't have a number. I refuse to count. But what I'll tell you, and I've and I've been lucky enough to be there when they when they show up and help them develop material, and then some established ones go further and things like that. They'll always do something that surprises you. Can I tell a story out of your out of your life? Yes, I know. I think I know which one you're going to go for. So yes, because you had a clown persona that surprised me in a way that actually revitalized both my questions and my beliefs about the subject of identity. So I have to preface this by saying part of the job of the teacher, once you get past just giving out information and once you get past being the leader, is you have to be the provocateur. The clown will just faff about or go to sleep or count blades of grass uh, if they're not if they're not given uh, something to press against mm-hmm. it's just it's a it's a nature of the beast sort of thing so one of the jobs that I, I found out that the years of being a complete ass paid off in that once I grew up and developed a fully formed soul I could still tap into that and where it seems to manifest is my ability to provoke in the lab under the right circumstances and knowing, not just knowing what to say, but where to press. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So one of the one of the skills that comes out of this is this discussion where you have a, 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 young, a young clown and you challenge, the first thing you challenge them is you kind of give them a really, and if they flinch, you're like, get out, you're not here anymore. And it, what your goal is, is not to shut them down, but it's to actually make them stand up to all the scrutiny because some child is going to go, you're make-believe, and it's over because all of a sudden the performer goes, I'm a fraud, and you have to prevent that because that's not productive. Yeah. So there comes a point where as you go deeper into this and you get past that, now you've got a persona that's in the room and now you've got to challenge it. You've got to figure out what it thinks, what it feels, what it wants, what it likes, what it hates. Yes. And 
when I say all of those, including the less positive ones, those things are important because they help you write stories. If you have a clown that hates something, you're probably going to want to explore that because that's where some interesting emotions for storytelling live. Yes. Not because you want to torture someone. So you, you bring Chadwick into the room. Yes. This, this, I come from the gym. When asked his origin story, he says, I come from the gym. From the gym. I come from the gym. Yo. And and there's the it's like He this, didn't say yo. He didn't say yo, but he meant He may it. as well have. He's he's a dead split, and I'm I'm gonna I get to speak from the outside, so it's great. Um he's a dead split between, you know, a sad emo boy and a gym rat. I mean, if you were just to combine those two things, you're pretty much in but with so yes, much if a sad emo boy was allowed to be in the gym without being harassed. Right. Exactly. That's who yeah, he yeah, is. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's who he is. I'm I'm blending I'm blending I uh some I'm, tropes. I'm blending tropes, not not saying what the experience would be like because I'm not there. So you you have someone who could both do cartwheels and and talks like a gym rat and f- sobs poetry at the drop of a hat. It's a very funny person to be around, and you're the hardest job is to not laugh in their face. And so this is who I'm this is who I'm working with. Yes. Uh, this this persona, this character, who uh, is very it's very different than you. Mm-hmm. Um. And and for one thing, you you are a, a tank with your sense of humor, and this is someone who actually comes across quite fragile, and it's very funny. Yes. And again, I'm I'm taking I'm I'm I am now in the room, and my job that day is to take a swing at this clown. Yes. So the clowns verbally. I had t- I had consumed extra water <laughs> for the sobbing because I've I've seen you dehydrate. So one of the things I said, I was challenging. We were getting into this disc- this sort of like. We were, we were stalking each other. I put the mats out, and we were stalking each other like like wrestlers, like boxers on the boxing match. And I was challenging. Instead of throwing a punch, I would throw a question, and the answer would come. And it was either deflect, push back, or fall, or or be knocked out. Was mm-hmm. sort of was sort of imagine a boxing match. So we're having this sort of dance off, this philosophic dance off. And at one point, I said, "Prove you're real." And and he said he didn't even flinch. He didn't. There was no pause. I can't produce the answer fast enough to to feel what it came as because it hit me squarely on the chin. He says, "How can you prove that the the person I am when I'm not performing is real and that I'm real and they're made up? Prove they're not made up." And I was like, "Uh oh." <laughs> And of course, as the teacher, you can't you can't show the uh oh. You have to say, "Well played, yes." And in the back of my head, I'm like, "Oh no, you've just called every every person on the world potentially a fraud, and therefore you're just as real as they are." And I I came after it was over. I came apart, and had to put myself back together because that felt very true. And as it turned out, <laughs> you came out a few months later. I came out a few months later and went home. <laughs> Hmm. Wow. Maybe maybe it was a bit of an act. So I think I think the button on this topic for me is that is mm-hmm. just is just I'm sure you're just as real as I am, and that's what's terrifying. That's why clowns. There's there's a bit of they're they're a little scary in that regard. Mm-hmm. And this is the type of thing we don't tend to talk. There's a reason we don't talk about this. In the lead-ups on work on workshops, no, or 
if it gets discussed during workshops at all, it's in the, it's in the time after the workshop or the breaks in between things, because it only seems to apply once people have reached that place. Because if I approach someone and say, I'm offering a course in how to split your soul into multiple pieces so that some of them are able to perform particular tasks. Not everyone's going to say yes. And a lot of people who could potentially be very good performers and could benefit from taking a course in clown might get very scared and or be very concerned about what I'm doing. What's funny about that is there are so many celebrities that if you if you talk to them, and I'm not a celebrity performers, performers, and what I mean by this is like well-known performers that get in front of very large crowds. Yes. Who on their way up went through a time where they had a persona that was the rock star that was capable of doing that. Yes, many, many very well-known musicians in particular. Sure. Did that. And yeah. I think it's I think it is very it's it's very adjacent. This sort of thing where we're grabbing at the best parts of ourselves, compressing them under a a, a little bit of pressure, mm-hmm. and then encouraging them to to go out there and and, and do, play and play. And I think it's very interesting. That's so. So yes, the very very short answer uh, could have just been yeah, that's happened all the time. But it's more fun to talk about it. With that in mind. Before we move on, if there's something we've mentioned in this where you want us to expand or you have a question, I'll put this out twice. First, um, to everybody listening, this is a huge topic that even even with research, we can't do well, but we love to talk about. So by all means, if you have further questions, feel free. And secondly, uh, to the person who asked us this wonderful uh, insp- you know, question that inspired all this conversation, if you have further questions that maybe you don't want had you know, in, in this forum, mm-hmm. by all means, reach out. I'd love to have a conversation about it because I think... Yeah, happy to talk to anybody. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's just because we're trapped in a closet and we're lonely, but uh, I'm always up for a good conversation. Yeah. E- easy, to, easy to have conversations that don't, don't end up here. Right. And for those of you listening along who decided to fast forward, please turn your players on now. And I'll read you another question. Fantastic. Okay. Well done on that. Thank you. Okay. So the question now, shaking off. oh, Oh, good. We can shake off the heavy stuff. This is good. I like this one. I love the idea of turnip day. I need a little clearer criteria for when I can call one, though. I want to know if it is still to come for me or I just missed it. Okay, for a quick review, Turnip Day is my personal holiday, which I invented and then shared with everyone to make for yourself. And it was the day I got, after many, 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 many months of work, my first handstand. Yes. And it was, it was, a, it was a big deal for me because it felt like a huge breakthrough and I was coming back from an injury and trauma and things. And so it now is an annual celebration that I, I, I look forward to every year. Um, but there's your question. So there's the question. Um, I happen to know, because I wrote these cards, um, that the person in question also did specify where they're at on their handstand journey. Oh, neat. And so to that person, my friend, you've missed it. Declare it whenever you'd like. Um, 
But congratulations! To, congratulations! You turn up a genius of body inversion. But the we took for our definition of when you can say you have done a handstand and can do a handstand, as opposed to when you are trying to do a handstand. Uh, we took directly from a definition given to us by the Handstand Factory, which is a group that's teaching. We'll link to them in the show notes. Um, who we are studying from. And their definition of when you do a handstand is balancing on your hands, so kicking up or going up into a handstand, um, making at least one balance correction and then intentionally coming back down. So you go up, there's no, there's no time specification. It is simply you go up under your own power, you correct at least once and you come back down under your own power by your own decision. Um, that is the definition that we use, we use, um, because we pulled this from that program. And when you were trying to decide and create this moment for yourself, when, when did it count? We talked about it because there are some options and there were some options that we, that we considered. And oh yeah. Um, I know, and I'll probably let you speak on that. Sure. But from, but after we just, after we discussed some of the possible options, that was what we decided on. And then you counted on me to help verify that you had in fact reached, um, a vertical line in your up and that you had balanced, uh, correctly. And so we jointly decided when you had actually reached it. I wanted, I wanted an outside eye. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't have a photo of me doing a handstand out of a video and that was very intentional. Um, this was a, a, a practice that I wanted to take on for my own reasons, both for health, but also as a way to really, really focus on being present in my body. And so I wanted something that I could both do and feel and have someone in the room who wasn't filming it verify. Not that there's anything wrong with it. This was just a, a, a way I wanted to approach it. It was something for me mm-hmm. that I, I don't want to look at it. I want to feel it. So I've been really careful to not film myself, check myself in that way. Which so, is counter to how a lot of people choose to mm-hmm. train it. It's counter to how I train it. So yeah, absolutely. that's you very that's specifically. That's me very specifically. Now, what I'll say was... I had an intermittent goal. I had an inter- intermediate goal where I kicked up and t- touched a wall behind me. I had, you know, certain certain things along the way like that. But what I was looking for was, and it's really clear that it was the minimum bar that I could determine was actually a handstand and not just throwing myself into a thing and hanging out there till I fell. I was looking for when is this a bad handstand so that I can say I can do terrible handstands and now I can work on improving that as opposed to, I can't quite do a handstand. I was looking for that line. Whereas when we were talking about the possibility of the turnip day, we also did talk about, like, does it is it when you touch the wall? 
that was a possibility because that was you being upside down. Right. And I, I started off with that being, what's funny is that I started off going, oh yeah, that's my goal. As soon as I touch the wall, I get, I get to call it. And then once I got that, I wanted a little bit more. And then I wanted a little bit more. And then at some point it became clear, okay, I've done it. I need to declare it. Otherwise I'm just going to keep chasing a yeah, thing. Chasing your goals, having shifting goals is good. But I needed, I needed some point where I declared this is in fact a success. Now I can go and improve on that success. There's a, there's a thing I always, I always like the idea. You have to be, you have to be terrible at something before you can be good at it. So having like that bar where you say, I have succeeded in doing something badly is a big deal. And realize we're talking about succeeding in doing something badly after um, months and months and months of work. M- right. So yeah, I was looking, I was looking for a goal like that. I will say to anybody doing a physical task, give yourself little rewards along the way. What I've learned from circus is that the early rewards come quickly. Throw a ball and catch it. You've 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 succeeded. Later on, the the rewards get further spaced. They're still there, but they get spaced further apart and they're a little harder to see. So I think celebrating those little tiny victories is really important. And congratulations on what apparently by your by your call yes. is is definitely you're succeeding. And I'll throw one more offer. Which is that if you want to send, if you're filming yourself, because like me, I don't. If you are filming yourself and you want us to look at it and make an official declaration, if that sort of thing is something you care about, where you have clowns incarcerated in a closet looking at a video and acknowledging that you've done a thing that you've already done, then yeah, we'll totally do that. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Happily. Sure. I think that's silly and you should just go and give yourself the the reward you want because you've, you've succeeded according to what I hear. So congratulations. And uh, yeah. All right. All right, then. I think that was... that was. Yeah, so I turned that one around without actually it was in, asking it. It was implied. So. It was a casual redirect. Yes. Conversational. So, so it is time to move on to the next question. Yes. And that question is... Do you want a drum roll? No. Okay. I don't think this one, I don't think this one needs it. Okay. Some need it. Some need the, the boost, but okay. I think this one's good. Okay. Do clowns have specializations. Oh. See, I told you. It's yeah, yeah, because my instinct is, is, is it could be a very short answer. Um, so one of the things I teach people is to never get on stage unless you're doing something you love because at any moment, that may be what you do on stage for the rest of your life. You never know what act people are going, what audiences are going to ask for. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have some performances that I do a lot. I have some skills that I haven't done in years just because they're not what I end up, what I end up doing or knowing. Um, for me, I've also noticed that when you have a performing company and I've been a part of larger performing companies at different times, the clown always seems to be the ultimate generalist. Their specialty is the fact that they know a little of this and a little of that. Yeah, I can dance a little, sing a little, play an instrument badly. I can do a little bit of juggling. I can, you know, that was kind of, you kind of become the person who fills in all the holes between all of these big acts. Because you have these people who have spent their life honing one skill. Yeah. And so you're in there being the glue, the human glue between these really amazing physical performances. Um, and I love being in a company like that. And the reason why is because the less people there are in a show, the more I have to do. 
And it gets exhausting. <laughs> um, no, it's true. Because if, if I do a solo show, suddenly I have to provide every shape in the show. Mm-hmm. If I'm the glue between, I can sometimes just walk on stage with a box and go, this is my box and everyone will be excited about that. I don't have to do anything. I love that the ease that that is. It's a high energy thing and it's a very high risk choice to walk out with nothing. Uh, it's something I really, I enjoy the pressure of. So I think the specialty, if I was to go looking for it, is that the in within the context of circus and of larger performances, the clown is the only act that needs the audience. If you think about it, the higher up wire, they can just walk across the high wire all they want. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the aerialists can fly through the air, the acrobats can stack, the jugglers can throw their stuff. But ultimately, if my job is to go to the audience and grab an audience member and there's no audience... Show's mm-hmm. over. True. There's just nothing True. happening. There's nothing to there. If I go dun 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 dun, and I don't get that little snap snap. Oh yeah, that's gonna be a problem. It's over. In fact, we've we've run into um, the problem of not knowing how long our show is gonna go. We wrote an incredible show uh, that we decided it was a little long, but we decided to not put an intermission in, and we went, "It'll be fine." The show runs. In, I think it was. An hour and a half. We thought it was about an hour. It was no, it was an hour and a half, which is long. And we were like, and we put at the front door. We put a person who made announcements, who said, "Please note, there is no intermission. There will not stop. It's a roller coaster ride. Pee first. Literally asked every person when they came in, "Have you peed? Have you peed? Have you peed?" It was like that, which is a weird thing to ask an audience. And yet, and yet they did it without seeming horrifying, which I thought was a great character bit. It was very kind of caring. Sort of, sort of figure out at the door, trying to take care of you. But what we didn't count on is when we when we timed the show, we didn't time it with an audience, and with an audience, and several clowns. Suddenly, that was a two-hour show, and people. We would go. We would ask audiences after the show. Obviously, we need to cut it. What should we cut? They said nothing. Put an intermission in, and ultimately, we we set that up. Um, for the we were planning on doing that for the next run. Uh, but the, the point is, we, we're with the audience. Our specialty is human interaction. Our specialty is emotional connection. And I think that's, if you look at the one skill that separates the clown from everybody else, what do they specialize in within the context of everybody else? That's, that's it. Within clowns, I'm sure they all, you know, musical clown, puppetry clown, this clown, that clown, acrobatic clown, juggling clown, Sure. But uh, I think the specialty, if you look at them versus the world, humans, we know them. What about you? Do you, do clowns have specializations? Do clowns have specializations? So I think you were spot on about how many, many of the clowns that I know uh, are generalists. And a huge part of it is you pull from absolutely everything and anything um, at least until you've got your act, and then yes, there's that thing of you suddenly are now the person who does this one very specific, very odd thing. And variations thereof. And variations thereon. Um, however, you have forgotten one of the traditional ways that the clowns happen. I have forgotten something? It's impossible. Um, 
Because if somebody has decided to become a clown, and they are not already a skill performer, they're going to pick up a whole bunch of different skills because that's how you find what's funny. Yeah. However, historically, there has been a tradition of those who are specialists in any given physical discipline in the circus. Oh, retiring. Tend to retire into clown. And so they have to learn the clown skills, the people part. But they've already got a physical something in the back. But they already have a specialty skill. Okay. And those 100% do specialize. I forgot. You're right. I forgot about how other people do it. Clown on the wire? Is its own thing. Is its own thing. And that's the wire, the best wire person. That is the person who has been on the wire for so many years. They know all of it. And can look like they're failing. Yeah, if safely. You ever, if you ever see someone in a show doing something badly, dangerously, most likely, if they're doing that and you're laughing, they're probably the most skilled performer involved in that grouping. There's there's two ways that happens. There is there's that. That is the most likely way that that happens. But one of the things that I've noticed is that in my training of physical skills, knowing that I'm a clown and knowing the intent I have for physical skills. I will learn enough of the correct way to do something, quote unquote, and then I will deliberately start training the modes of perceived failure that are safe. So I will never reach the point of knowing how to do the skill perfectly by the by the rules of that skill performance. Because, for example, I learned how to do everything with my feet flexed very specifically because it looks funny. It looks funny. So I will only learn how to do a thing with my feet pointed until I know how to do it. And then I start deliberately training it with flexed feet, even though anyone teaching that skill would be actively annoyed with me because that's quote unquote wrong. And they've got good reasons why it's wrong. But I know that my use of the minimum, the minimum level of skills I have with it is intentionally for clown. And so I have to learn how to do that. So you give yourself permission to be bad at things as part of your work. Very much so. Yeah. That's, that's, I think if we, if more I, of us did that, we'd be, we'd be I give myself place. permission to actively learn the wrong way to do a thing. So long as I've tested that it's safe first. That's, that's. It's a thing. It's a thing. I, I'm to read this to you now because I think you've answered. I think you've I think you've landed the okay, pre- yeah. previous question. So you get a bonus question because you've given us a great and you out you 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 outflanked me with the with the the circus history knowledge. I was so focused on my own experience, which was just being lucky to be in the room. I didn't have any skill. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just happy to be here. Okay. Oh my. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. 
If you could rotate any room in your home by 90 degrees and gravity would accommodate, you walk on what was a wall as if it were the floor, which room would you rotate? If you could do this for any enemies, would your selection change? Are there any public spaces you'd like changed in this way? Wow. That's a brain breaker. You've been you've been asked to defy physics again. So, the answer is if I could if I could turn a room 90, if I could turn gravity 90 on a room. And that's not what it says. It says turn the room 90 and gravity would accommodate. I mean, interpret as you will. I think Fair. I, I think you're right, but go. Um I think I would try to see if I could manage something with more floor space, but I don't think. Now this place doesn't. I don't think there's a room in my house that does that. It's a thing I would totally do for that purpose. You're just. But I don't think I have one. You're just lost on this. I don't think I have one that works that way. Um, Well, pick a room and rotate it. Well, I'm thinking about rotating my bedroom. Mostly because I think that'd be hilarious. To walk on the wall? Yeah. Mostly to walk into my bedroom and that be on a different gravitational... Oh, just the way you'd have to enter would be tricky, too. Because you'd have to, like, jump in. Yeah. That sounds like fun. Oh, you may... So, honestly, I might do that. I think there's at least one wall where the... Where I don't lose floor space the quote-unquote floor space that way. So I think I think I might I might do it with my bedroom because well, that would be silly and fun. And I, I love a, that you've you've worked out that clowns are all entrances and exits. So once <laughs> again, just how, how do we get in there? Um, I like that. So so I, I like that idea quite a bit. So I think I think I'd say my bedroom. Okay. And what about for your enemies? Oh. Um. And do you have enemies? I don't know that I do right now. Um, not not ones personally. Not not personal ones. And I feel like if you're simply thinking about, like, if an intruder came into your space, would you wish that it was something other than the one you just p- picked? And I think in that case, no, because my bed would be up on the wall and that would confuse the heck out of them and they'd be scared. So I'd have a, a way to be safe in my home. So I think it stays that way. You have a defensive perimeter based on modified gravity. Yes. I just wanted to say that because it sounded cool. So I think I think it stays the same on okay. that. And then the question of if there's... Any public spaces I would change that way. I don't have a particular one in mind. But the idea of there being a jungle gym, a a playground climbing space... That you're walking along, like, if, like, you're walking along out from a school and then gravity just shifts by 90 degrees in the place that you climb, I think that would be, that would be my, like, that would be so much fun. That's a good... I, yeah, I think that, that would be, 
that would be what I'd want to do because that that would just be very silly. Could, could, could like lean on a slide or walk up a monkey bar or something. Yeah. Well, because I I've always just kind of ignored how I'm supposed to interact on. You do have a gravity problem. Climbing equipment when it comes to to gravity in the first place. Yeah. So the idea of mostly the idea in that case that's that would be that thing of intentionally setting myself so that it looks like I am on the quote unquote ground. So what would be a level like where gravity was for other people? Oh, so you're you're looking normal and everybody's standing on the ceiling. I'm looking normal and people are standing on the ceiling. Or if I'm alone in a space, I'm looking normal. But then somebody walks in and, and now they're suddenly pulled to the far to the to the wall off to the side. I love that to make this joke work, you have to sit there exerting all of your exerting effort tons of energy in order just to, to sit st- still. Just to sit still. That's so my. That, that's so the sort of thing I like. I think it's you as a person, though. It is a tremendous amount of effort for you to sit still. Also true. So that's good. So then, let me ask you: Are you going to flip the question around? I am going to flip the question around. See what I did there? This is so good, and let me tell you why. In addition to our our new timing of recording we've we've uh, changed circus in place our our public workout sessions on video chat to a daytime schedule yes and yesterday oh yeah we turned the room around because the sun was coming in behind us and it was blowing out the camera and because of that we would have to close the mini blinds which was fine but we were missing out on all the we were getting some daylight we were missing out on the daylight and it was kind of a bummer and we were trying to figure out could we reverse the room and so, so we, we took yesterday which was an off day right and we reversed the room and what was so cool about this was then okay so we set it all up and then we turned around and looked at it and the radical just by spinning all your your we didn't really turn any furniture around. No, we just changed which direction we were filming from. Right. It completely changed the environment, and it felt like a different place. And it so... It rattled me a little bit. Not in a bad way, but in like a, my cheese has been moved at the Olympic level way. Uh, I, I, I kind of had a little moment where I was like, well, everything's different, and what is this, and what is that? And the ceiling in there is slanted. Now it's slanting the wrong way. The light's coming in this way instead of that way. And then when I settled down on it, I was like, Wow how much this room has been transformed by simply facing it in, in the wrong direction. And if you were to level that up by going other walls, other things, other whatnots, the practical in me goes, I need the, we have very little floor space. And it's not, we only have one room with tall ceilings and I don't think with the stairwell we get any additional floor space. But I think it might be really cool for me, a personal space what would I change? I know what it is, but yes. it's embarrassing. I know what it is. It's embarrassing. Okay, so if you could rotate any room yeah. in your home... It's embarrassing. ...by 90 degrees, yeah. and gravity would accommodate, Uh huh. which room would you rotate? So, the I'm very sleepy when I first wake up. Mm-hmm. And there are two bathrooms in this place. I'm further defining the world because we didn't really do the up-the-stairs thing. You know, oh, That's true. why it felt wrong earlier. So... There are two. There are two bathrooms in this place, and the toilet paper holder is on a different wall on each. One is on the left side. One is on the right. When I'm really sleepy, it throws me off, and sometimes I reach the wrong direction. So I don't care which bathroom. But I think if we could spin one of the bathrooms around so the toilet paper's on the other side, that'd be great for me. Okay. So that's that's my my for me for my enemy. Yeah. So if you if you could do this for any enemies, would your selection change? Easy. So easy. I like the bathroom inverted one eighty. 
So the no, toilet's on the ceiling? Toilet's on the ceiling, but gravity only affects the water, not anything else. No problem. Okay, that's hilarious. But the question was 90 degrees. Oh, 90? You don't get 180. You don't get oh, to do it twice. Oh, well, wrecks it. I was going to poop on a billionaire. Now what? You've wrecked my plan. I'm sorry. Nine, okay, 90 degrees. So 90 ba- degrees. Bathroom, we can still make work because we could rotate them. We could rotate 190 degrees and it'll end up. It'll, it'll make it work. We can make that work. What would I do for an enemy? I don't have a lot of enemies. Oh, I got it. Mm-hmm. I would, uh, whichever enemy has the best view, I would turn their house so it, it wrecks their view and just makes their day a little crappy. All right, all right, that works. And for public, I would like a park because I think everybody should have the ability to climb up a nice grassy wall. (laughs) All right. I haven't gotten to do it. I think it sounds fun. Just a nice grassy wall going up to, and you know, lay on some sunshine. It just sounds good, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 That's my answer. Okay. Okay. For all of you out there, we hope you. uh, That is the end of our cards. That is the end of our cards. I hope you. I hope you rotate your rooms in ways that make you happy. Yes. I hope whatever whatever voices in your head are pleasant. Yes. I hope whatever you specialize in, you manage to turn it upside down from time to time. Very nice. You see how I put the button yeah, on Yeah, very, very, very... Buttony. 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 Yes. Yeah. Thank you for listening and spending some time with us. We'll see you next time right here. On Two Clowns in a Closet. And now... And this is exciting. I have another theme song remix. Ooh. I do. You ready? Listen carefully. Theme song remix. Yeah.